There was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him, and bring a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet, and bring the fattened calf and kill it, and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf, because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you, and I never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. This is God's word. Well, good afternoon, everybody, and happy Easter. It is, it is great to be with you, and as John mentioned, if you're new here, a warm welcome to you. Uh, if you've been coming to the church, to church for a long time, or maybe a friend or a family member invited you, and quite frankly, you just were too scared to say no, and you're here. Uh, thrilled that you're here. Um, yeah, and we just want you to see how, how beautiful Jesus is. And so, uh, you may be wondering, you know, as you were hearing the scripture passage read for today, you may have been thinking, it sounds like an unconventional Easter passage because, you know, where's the empty tomb? That's what Easter is all about. And uh, that's a good question. You should have that question. But the reason why we chose this passage for today is because we want to show you all what Easter does. And the promise that Jesus makes is because of his resurrection, if you entrust your life to him, he brings you home. Uh, is one of the ways that he talks about belonging to him. He brings you home. That's what the resurrection does. And I once heard an English professor say that any good story can be summarized as a longing for home, right? So what's home? Home is a place where you feel like you belong to it, and it somehow belongs to you. It's where you feel seen. It's where you're cared for. And most of all, a home is where you're loved, 
Okay, because you can have a you can have an Instagram perfect home overlooking the sparkling sea, and if there's no love there or belonging, it's not a home, because it's love and belonging that makes a home a home. And I, I think I can say this without fear of contradiction that for most of you, if not all of you in this room, including me, we don't experience life as a settled state of being at home. Like in the, we might have glimpses and fleeting moments of beauty. But even just when you look at the statistics, so in one generation, uh, the number of people who say they have no close friends has quadrupled. When you look at just since the year 2000, depression and anxiety have gone up by a lot. And not just because, you know, because often we think, well, that's just because people are more open to, to talk about it, so there's more self-reporting. That's true, but it's also the objective measures of it, such as you know, eating disorders and self-harm and suicides have rid, uh, ris- risen by a third in the last two decades. Over half of Americans say that if something were really wrong in their life, there's no one outside their family that they knew that they could talk to about what's going on. And we're living in one of the safest, most prosperous times and places in history. So clearly, we're not home in the fullest sense. And so what Jesus offers here isn't necessarily that your immediate circumstances are going to change, but he does offer you an incredible promise that when you follow him, you will be brought home. And so we're going to look at what that looks like, and that's why he tells this parable. And so we'll look at it under uh, three acts, you could say. So there's three main characters in this parable. There's the father, who represents God, and there's a younger brother, and there's an elder brother. And so that's just, that's how we'll look at this parable. So act one, how does the younger brother lose home? Number two, how does the elder brother lose home? And then number three, how does Jesus bring us home? Okay, so first act, how does the younger brother lose home? Act two, how does the elder brother lose home? And then act three, how does Jesus bring us home? And so as we move into this, just a heads up, the first two acts may feel weighty. And so you may be thinking, like, I thought this was Easter. It was supposed to be good news. Uh, but Jesus is a good storyteller. And so just like if you've ever, ever bought a diamond at a jewelry store, there's a reason why they give it to you in a black case, right? Because in a black case, the luster of the diamond is seen with greater clarity. Just so Jesus is going to show the weight of what losing home looks and feels like. So the beauty of who he is is brought into greater vigor, okay? So first, act one, how does the younger brother lose home? So uh, we see this summarized in the first paragraph, verses 11 through 16. And essentially what happens is, is this younger brother of a fairly wealthy father, he goes to his dad and says, hey dad, you know, I'm ready for my inheritance. Give me mine, give me my stuff. And so he takes all of his money and he goes off into a faraway land and he loses money very quickly, you know, prostitution, gambling, reckless decisions, and so forth. And as modern readers, we read this, and I think what comes to mind is we think, okay, Jesus is painting an example of a guy who makes poor investment decisions, right? So like, okay, dude, at least put your money in some stocks or cryptocurrency or something. But that's not what would have offended the original readers or the original hearers of this parable. When this younger brother goes to the father and says, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. So this is a shame and honor culture. Uh, Middle Eastern, very patriarchal culture, and the son would receive the inheritance after the father died. And so when the son goes to the father and he says, give me my inheritance, what he's saying is, father, I wish you were dead, but you're not dead, so I'm going to treat you as if you were dead. 
give me my stuff, and then he takes it, and he leaves the home. And the original hearers, they would have known that there was only one response that father would have given this son, and that was to drive him out, certainly not give him anything, then drive him out of the house, perhaps under the threat of physical blows, never to be seen again. But what does it say? It says, the father divided his property between them, end of verse 12. It literally says he divided his life. That word probably is the word for life. He divided his life between them to show the compassion and generosity of the father. So the son takes his stuff and he leaves. Now, as the son is leaving his house, he's thinking to himself, I'm finally free. I no longer have to be somebody's son. I no longer have to be somebody's brother. I no longer have to be in this home. I can now create my own identity. It's a very modern, heroic narrative, is it not? And then what do we see? In verse 15, what happens is after he goes broke and a famine arises in the country, the son, he, he loses so much of his humanity that he has to hire himself out to feed pigs. And in ancient Jewish culture, pigs were the filthiest of animals. So when the listeners are hearing he's feeding pigs. I mean, that's akin to now if, you know, if somebody were to walk up to you covered in feces. That's how repugnant and repulsive they would find someone who fed pigs. And they're not even, he's begging to be fed with the food that the pigs are eating, and he's not even given that much. And so in a tragic twist of irony, here we have this younger son who is free, but he is nobody's son. He's nobody's brother. He isn't home. And what's Jesus' point? Jesus' point isn't never leave your parents' house. Okay, if your parents do a good job, they'll help you leave the house. Okay, sorry if I'm stepping on toes there, but generally a good parent right, helps set their, set their child up for um, to, to live on their own, to be self-sustaining. So Jesus isn't saying never leave your parents' house. What Jesus is doing is he's giving a challenge to the value system of our culture in which we say, I am my own and I belong to myself. I mean, that is very much in the air that we breathe. And believers, you who are Christians in this room, don't just think we're talking about those people out there. We're all impacted by this as well. Okay, to say, I am my own and I belong to myself, this is as self-evident to most people as saying, water is wet. But where Jesus is pushing us is he's saying, but how is that working? Because if to be fully happy and free is to know that you are your own and you belong to yourself, wouldn't we see, in general, more contentment, more joy, deeper communal ties, less anxiety, less depression. And yet the trends are exactly the opposite. And that's because to say, I am my own and I belong to myself, is to say, I need to justify myself, I need to create my own identity, I need to create my own meaning, and that works for a while. But eventually, sometimes you see this in a couple years if you're lucky, uh, for others of you, it, it may take your entire life. Eventually, you come to a point where it's untenable because to create yourself is to place on yourself a burden that you cannot bear because you're not self-created. You're God-created. 
And so uh, just as a simple example, think about a, think about a beached whale. Because okay, all of us are like beached whales to a degree. Is a beached whale who's free of the water truly free? Kinda? She can breathe raggedly for a while until she eventually withers and dies. Right Where she grows and feels alive is when she's in the good constraints of the ocean. And so what Jesus is telling us here is when we're in the good constraints of being in communion with God and making the purpose of our life loving God and loving neighbor to the glory of God, there's still a lot of freedom in there of how we can swim around, and that will look differently for a lot of different people. But it's only when that's the place that which we live is where we come fully alive, and ironically, we become the most happy and become our most true selves. So that's the first thing Jesus is saying here is just this idea of I, be- I am mine and I belong to myself isn't sustainable. And it's not what you're made for. It's not how you're going to find home. But second, see what happens here when we adopt that ethic. See how it erodes community. See how the, the younger brother, I mean, he shamed his father. He left his brother. He left his community. And I mean, just this whole idea, right, where we, where we think basically, okay, I can, I can and should bend my environment and bend institutions and bend things around me to suit my ambitions. That's fundamentally at odds with love of neighbor and care for other people. And, you know, one place we see this played out, we're probably, all of you have seen this, is in the movie Frozen, right? Where in the, uh, in the famous song, it's called Let It Go, Right, over three billion views on YouTube. I know you've seen it. So as she's right, leaving her obligations of being the queen of Arendelle, right, she sings a song, "Let It Go," or right, "No right, no wrong, no rules for me. I'm free." Right, very modern. If you want to know like what our culture is thinking, just watch Disney. Right, they they know what's up. They have, they have a pulse on it. So she goes and she creates this ice castle where she lives there on her own. And in the Broadway musical of this, don't ask me how I know, but in the Broadway musical of this. <laughs> I believe it's when her, her sister is with her. She's there in the ice castle, and there's this line where she says, I'm alone, but I'm free. I'm alone, but I'm free. And that is our culture summed up in five words. We live in the most connected but disconnected society probably ever. And because personal autonomy and deep relationships don't go together. Um, Jonathan Haidt, for those of you who are too highbrow for Frozen, okay, so Jonathan Haidt, who's a social psychologist at NYU, he wrote, uh, he's not a religious person, uh, I believe, and he wrote a book called The Happiness Hypothesis, and he says in The Happiness Hypothesis, he says, the ideology of personal freedom can be destructive, Because in it, people will leave homes, jobs, cities, and marriages in the search for personal fulfillment. And in doing so, they break the bonds of relationships that fundamentally make life worth living. He nails it, right? Because to say, I am my own, and then break obligations and duty is to break the bonds of love, So that's act one. 
Okay, how does the younger brother lose home? Like really just, he's a go big or go home kind of guy. Or this I am my own, I belong to myself kind of narrative. Okay, so that, that's act one. Okay, remember, weighty, black part of the diamond box, remember? Okay, so getting to the good news, but first act two. So act two, how does the elder brother lose home? So I'll read beginning in verse 25. Now his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, look, these many years I have served you and I never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. So what's going on? Elder brother, he's out. He doesn't know his younger brother that left months, years ago, is back. He pulls in the driveway. He hears music inside the house. He doesn't even know why there's music, but he already knows he doesn't like it. So he calls his servant to come outside. He says, you know, what's going on? And the servant says, oh, your younger brother's back. And the elder brother's thinking, oh, is he now? Okay, so he stays outside. He makes his father come out to get him. And look, the, look at the first thing he says to his father, verse 29. Look. I don't know what kind of family you grew up in, but if I ever started a sentence with look, to my mom and dad, who are very generous and gentle parents, that exchange would not have ended well for me. Okay, so he says, look, these many years I've served you, I never disobeyed you, you never even gave me a young goat, but when this son of yours came, he can't even bring himself to say his brother's name. You never gave me a young goat, verse 29, that I might celebrate with my friends. And there it is. I never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat. See, this elder brother, he never left his father's house. He never disobeyed his father. But what do we see here? When he gets angry at his father's mercy, and he says, you never gave me a young goat, we see that the heart of the elder brother and the heart of the younger brother are the same. Remember, younger brother, I am my own. Therefore, I don't want you, dad. I just want your stuff. And now we see here, it's the same heart in the elder brother. Dad, I've never stayed here for you. I'm not here to know you, to love you, to be known by you. I just, I just want your, your things because you're rich. And I'm here with the hopes that if I keep being good enough, you'll finally bless me. And so the elder brother, he is just as miserable as the younger brother. He erodes community just as much as the younger brother. So he's, he's shaming his father out in public. He's making this a scene outside. And it's the same, same heart as the younger brother. And what's Jesus doing here? And Christians, you need to see this. Uh, this parable has meant so much to me for and challenged me because of this section right here. And I hope it does for you. And also, <clears throat> if you are here and you know, you don't consider yourself a religious person, you, you don't have any interest in Jesus, or maybe you're just exploring the faith, hopefully you maybe pay, and per, pay particularly close attention to this section because what starts this whole parable is in verse 1 of chapter 15. You see the Pharisees, which are religious authority figures uh, who obey lots of Bible rules, but 
sadly and horribly, they use their power to oppress others, which actually isn't obeying the Bible's rules. Okay, but they see Jesus eating with sinners and, and tax collectors. And they say, look, this man, Jesus, receives sinners and eats with them, verse 2 of chapter 15. And so what Jesus is doing here by telling the story of, of this elder brother is he's basically saying, he's showing, he, he's saying, okay, you're saying I receive sinners and eat with them. I'll show you what sin is. And so as he begins to tell this parable and he talks about the younger brother, the Pharisees are, you know, they're sitting there nodding their head. Yes, he's shaming his dad. He's out with prostitutes. He's gambling. But then when Jesus goes to talk about the elder brother, that's where they would have been knocked on their face. Because here he's saying the elder brother is the religious church-going person. He's, he's obeying God. He's doing all the good things. But yet he is just as alienated from the Father. This is, this is striking. And so first what you should see is, you know, if maybe you don't go to church much anymore or you don't want to set foot inside a church because you've been met with people who claim to be Christians or to be religious and are extremely harsh and hypocritical and judgmental because they're such good people. This is nothing less than a forceful rebuke that Jesus is giving to those people. Okay, he says, that is no place in my kingdom. But also, you may have the question, why does the Bible keep talking about everybody needing to be saved? Like, why can't, why do good people need to be saved? And that is a good question. And what Jesus, Jesus' answer here is the elder brother, because this elder brother, what's happening? He's a good guy. Right? He contributes to his community. He obeys authority figures. I mean, in general, like he's, he's contributing to the wholeness of people around him. But the entire time, he doesn't actually want a love relationship with the one who helped bring him into existence, with the one who helped keep him alive as he was a little kid, with the one who's given him every single thing that he has. He doesn't actually want the Father. And you can see the injustice of it because, I mean, for you, have you ever been in a relationship with someone where you realize that ultimately they wanted you just for the things you could give them, not for you? Like for who you are in and of yourself? It's one of the hardest things to experience. And that's exactly what the elder brother is doing here to the dad. And that's exactly what we do when we're just really good people but don't want deep communion and fellowship with the one who made us, who sustains us, who offers to give us everything. And so what Jesus is saying here is is the essence of sin isn't behavior, although it can include that, but the essence of sin is saying, I want God's stuff. Okay, it'd be great if I can have a nice job and a beautiful partner who also loves me and some good experiences and some nice vacations, but God... He's kind of off to the side. And that can be true whether you are in the church or not. Okay, and so this is the second way we lose home. Okay, it's the elder brother kind of way of being really, really good, but not actually wanting the father. Okay, so finally, number three, act three. How are we brought home? This is good. This is good. You ready? All right. How are we brought home? So let's go back to verse 17. 
So this is the younger brother while he's out in the field. And when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will rise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. So here, the younger brother, he's in agony. He's in ashes. He's all alone. And in a fool's hope, he thinks, maybe if I go back to my dad, I can be brought in, obviously not as a son, but as a hired servant. So hired servants were, I mean, contextually, you had sons, you know, full security in the family. They received the inheritance. Then you had slaves, which they weren't like slaves as we think of them today, but they were more like contracted workers, right? They had security. They, they had rights. After their, their contract ended, they may be let free. And then so third on the totem pole is hired servants. You had the lowest security. You'd work for a day, and maybe if you were good enough, right, you'd be kept in the house, but you certainly weren't part of the family at all. And so he says, you know, maybe I can be brought back in as a hired servant. And what hit me for the first time as I was studying this passage for this week is as he's rehearsing the speech he's going to give his dad when he sees his dad again, it's the beginning of verse 19. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Is that not the cry of every human being? Am I worthy? Am I worthy to be a mother? Am I worried? Am I worthy to be a, a daughter or a son? The question, am I worthy? It's the question you ask yourself as you head into your new school as an elementary school kid. It's the question you're asking when you're in high school looking for a date. Am I worthy? It's the question you're asking when you go for a job interview. It's the question the recipient of an Oscar is asking as they receive it. Am I worthy? And I think for all of us, one of our deepest fears is we'll realize the answer to that is no. I am no longer worthy to be blank. Like there's this sense that maybe there's just something wrong with me that isn't wrong with everybody else who seems to have it okay. And so the son is stumbling home with this burning conviction. It's not a question for him, it's a conviction. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. And so as he, as he walks back home and the father sees him in the distance, all of Jesus' hearers would know there is only one response that son's going to get. The father's going to wait for him, and then he'll either ignore him or beat him, but certainly he's going to slam the door in his face. But what does the father do when he sees his son? Asking, am I worthy? He runs. He runs. And embraces him. 
And by putting on the robe, he says, you're not just going to be a hired servant. Are you kidding me? He cuts off his son's speech. He says, you're a son. You're my son. And in that moment, that son who was asking, am I worthy, finally becomes full and free. And who he was always most meant to be. Why? Because darkness and doubt is always transformed by intimacy. And in this embrace, this son, he's no longer his stubbornness or his successes or his shame or his failures. He's no longer even any abuse that may have happened to him while he was out in a faraway land. No, in this embrace, he's finally home. And as you think about God, is this the person that you have in mind? Someone running at you with a kindness and a strength and a care that no father ever could and all the kindness and the warmth and the love that no mother ever could to pardon each and every one of your transgressions, past, present, and future, because he is that extravagant. That is who God is. And it's only in that embrace that you'll finally be home. And what drives this home even further is the question of, there is a real injustice here that took place, right? I mean, the son was a jerk, right? He, he wronged his dad. He wronged his brother. And so what is this, this sentimentality? You know, does God overlook injustice? And, you know, and you may know some things that you've done in your life where it's like, but I don't just get a hug after I've done something like that. And so look again at who's telling this story. It's Jesus, And you have to ask the question, why is Jesus telling a story about a son who's in agony, who's alone, who's in rags, and he calls out for help, and the father opens the door and runs out to him and embraces him and brings him into a feast? And it's because not long after Jesus tells this story would be Good Friday, which is a couple days before Easter. And on Good Friday... Jesus was a son who was in agony and alone and naked and he cried out for help. My God, my God. And the door was slammed in his face. He wasn't given a feast. He was given vinegar. He was cast out. Why? Because he was trading places with you just as he was trading places with this son. And what the promise of Easter is because of Good Friday and because of Easter where Jesus rose from the dead, It doesn't matter how shame-filled you are. It doesn't matter how good you are. (laughs) You are fully seen and fully embraced. And you get that permanently because of what Jesus did. And so for those of you here who are exploring the faith, I would would just ask yourself, maybe your life is going great, and I certainly don't wish ill will on anyone who's here. But I would, I would use this moment to just ask yourself, is, is how I'm living working? And maybe think of it along in these lines, perhaps, because every other way of living outside of the gospel, 
you have to be someone and do something and achieve things in order to get the embrace. Whether it's the embrace from yourself, living up to your own standards, or whether it's the embrace from other people, it's only in the gospel of Jesus where you get the embrace first. And then out of that, you truly live. And this parable ends on a, it's a weighty note because at the end, we see, so the younger brother was brought back in, the one who looked really lost. But the elder brother lostness is perhaps the most dangerous kind of lostness because he doesn't realize he's lost. He thinks, I'm just a good person. And so it's blinding him to his need for God. And the parable ends with the, with the elder brother still outside and the father entreating him to come in. And so I would just plead with you, as Jesus is pleading with you, to come into the house and receive the embrace. Because if you do not, then you will be outside. It's a free gift, but you do have to receive it. And believer, how do you respond to this? Maybe just one question to ask is, how much distance do you put up between yourself and God, between yourself and other people? Because you don't believe you're already in the embrace of the Father. And another way that you can live out of this, and I hope that's the thing that you most see, right? Loved and embraced. Number two is we're, we see how this idea of when you don't believe you're embraced by God, how it erodes community. And I would just ask yourself, where in your life may you be acting like the elder brother? Where you're holding bitterness in your heart towards somebody because of just something they do or keep doing. When you hold bitterness, what you're doing is you're saying like the elder brother, I'm one of the good sons who never left his father's house. But when you're welcomed by God, you actually have the freedom to forgive and then go out and you then get to be the father in the lives of other people, welcoming them as he's first welcomed and embraced you. Let's pray.